Gentlemen, we have been in the section known as covenant sanctions. I'm sorry, covenant stipulations. And you'll notice this section is very long. And when we think about the covenant, the arrangement, the agreement, if you will, that we have with God, we normally think about all that He's done for us and simply putting our trust in Him, which is the fundamental and first act You know, after realizing our need for a covenant with Him, we simply trust Him to provide the provisions of the covenant that are needed for us to have a safe relationship with God. But you'll notice in the Old Testament and the New alike that then there are many stipulations for this relationship. And sometimes we can get confused and think, gosh, look at this rule book, man. It just seems to go on forever. I mean, this you know, corporate handbook here, all the rules and procedures, is pretty extensive. And you can feel that way sometimes and even sometimes be led astray into thinking, you know, well, that's, that's how you have a saving relationship with God is just keep all the rules. But that would be a big mistake. We have to keep remembering what comes first. You go back to the beginning of this book and you have the historical prologue to this covenant to remind us what God has already done for us, which is what guarantees this relationship, what initiated this relationship, and who will sovereignly maintain this relationship because we will not keep our end of the bargain perfectly. But remember that the Christian religion is a very ethical religion. And it's ethically distinctive, and we'll see some of those distinctives today. And it is vital for us that we walk in these distinctive stipulations. That we, for example, in the New Testament, we learn to love our enemies. That's very, very important. Do you make an extra special effort toward the person that you think hates you? <laughs> you really should. They, all, they said of Bishop, uh, uh, Archbishop, I mean, uh, Bishop uh, Temple, William Temple, that uh, if you really wanted to receive his favor, let him think that you were his enemy. And That is a distinctive of the Christian faith. It's one of the stipulations that Jesus lays down for us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, this is what the the commandment to love always meant in the Old Testament. You didn't get it. So Jesus in no way lays aside the ethical stipulations of our faith when He teaches us. When He teaches us, He goes back, Sermon on the Mount, He says, let's clean this up. Let's be sure you understand. The the, The Old Testament laws were more binding than you ever imagined. They not only bound your behavior, the intent all along was to bind your heart, the very thoughts of your mind. The the rabbis and the Pharisees were absolutely amazed at the teaching of Jesus, and they still are. Still, to this day, Orthodox Jews cannot believe the kind of standard that Jesus sets for morality because they say it's impossible, which of course it is. That's the reason we need the cross of Christ. However, the calling upon our lives is one that's, that's very lofty. It's the highest ethical calling in the world. So don't be thrown astray in your ethical life by the grace of God. In other words, God saves us by His grace. We are justified solely based on what Christ did for us, not what He does in us. But He does do something in us. And if we have received that gospel which has uh, of the cross of Christ for us, there will of necessity be a change within us. 
if you have received the gift of Christ's atonement, you only do that because you're born again. And if you're born again, you will live a different life. So you have not only a life that is justified, a life that is saved, but you have a heart that is changed, and those two always go together. So God has given us a heart to walk with Him. So don't let, don't let the grace of God in your justification throw you off about the necessity for sanctification. Without holiness, said the writer of Hebrews, no one will see the Lord. Without a walking with God in the stipulations, no one will see Him. But at the same time, don't let your zeal for the stipulations of the covenant, whether Old Testament or New Testament, throw you off in terms of your justification. No matter how faithfully you keep the stipulations, it's never good enough to justify you before the face of a pure and holy God. You need a perfect record, and your record in keeping the stipulations, whether you're Billy Graham or anybody else, is not good enough. Billy Graham, for, for one, for sure knows that. So don't be thrown aside. Remember, the first part of the covenant, the historical prologue, is, are the grounds upon which our acceptance is based. The stipulations is the, are, are the lifestyle that we live out of gratitude for what He's done for us. So in this lengthy section on stipulations, be sure you keep the context. Yes, they're lengthy, and here's why. Because the implications of the Christian life apply to every realm of life. And what the stipulations are showing us is that with all the Ten Commandments, remember the stipulations kind of go in the order of the Ten Commandments, that the grace of God and your gratitude for His grace is to be worked out in every single aspect of your life, your thinking, your feeling, your doing, your speaking, all your life in every situation. Well, that takes a while to cover that and to give us examples of how this all works out and what it means to be a gracious man. So that's where we are in the stipulations. We're coming toward the end of them. But let us not get worn out with it. Let us rather rejoice that the Christian ethic is truly distinctive in every area to which it speaks. And it's based on knowing for sure that something has already been accomplished for you that secures your favor with God. And now you're walking out in this life in the favor of God. You've already been given that favor through the work of Jesus Christ which you've received. Now let's look in the Old Testament. Having been delivered from Egypt, having been redeemed from slavery, having been guaranteed God's presence with them, here's what he's saying, that my presence means something. My presence ought to change your life. And when we look at chapter 23, which is our text for today, um, the uh, entire chapter, we'll see that really what Moses is talking about is this is how you live in the presence of God. God not only delivered you out of Egypt, delivered you out of slavery by His mighty hand of justice, but He now promises to live with you. You're going to work today. He is with you. You're going home to your family. He is with you. You're facing a very difficult situation today. He is with you. You have His presence. And that presence means you've got His power, his guardian angels are looking out after you. I mean, Big Daddy is on your side. That it really means something to have God with you. But if He is with you, now we have to be very careful to honor His presence. It's uh, to use the name Billy Graham again. I've often said to people who go out on dates, 
Just imagine Billy Graham is with you on this date. That will probably affect your behavior somewhat. Well, Billy Graham is like a piece of dirt compared to Christ who actually is with you on your date. And he's with you in your business dealings and in your accounting and in your giving when you open your checkbook and in your attitudes toward other people. He's with you when you talk to your wife in private. He's with you in your sex life, whether single or married. He's with you in the way that you resolve conflicts today. He's there. And His holiness is, is awesome. And the biggest problem for Christian men today is not recognizing that they're living life before the face of an all-knowing God. That's what this chapter is about, is simply living your life consciously in the presence of God. That's the way to live the Christian life. Now, of course, you need to know who He is, but you, you do need to know He is here and I'm living before His face. And then whether you're by yourself or in a private conversation with your best friend or engaged in conflict, whatever it is, the chief concern is to please Him. If He's with you, the chief concern is always to please Him. And we'll see that in these examples before us in chapter 23. Let's take a look at it. And for those who even live in the wilderness or going into a new land, like these folks are getting ready to do, they must live in His presence. And we have some very interesting verses. You can make chapter 23, verse 1, your memory verse for today if you want to. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, for those of you to whom this applies, let me say that the New Testament is good news for you. All right. Verse 2, it gets more interesting as we go on. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, you didn't expect that today, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it, and turn back and cover up your excrement. Now, gentlemen, when you go home and tell your wife, what did you study in Amen today? <laughs> Come up with a really good answer, will you? All right. 
Because, verse 14, the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. You see what I'm talking about? The presence of the Lord everywhere. All right. Verse 15, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will require, surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish. But you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. All right. This is, there are a lot of things about this code that are very different from the surrounding nations, and we'll look at that as we go. And the reason it's different is because Israel is to be a different people because God is a different God. And if God has saved us the way that He saved them, then we must live our lives out toward other people very differently. Now, first of all, we want to practice God's presence in worship assembly. He says, when you enter the assembly of the Lord, and these assembles, assemblies were for festivals or for reading the law together, they would be what we would call today worship services. So, first of all, for heaven's sakes, practice His presence there. Don't bring into His sanctuary something that He doesn't want. Please Him when you're worshiping Him. And remember, the primary goal of worship is not to give your Sunday a little lift, but to please the Lord. And most people go to church thinking, am I going to enjoy this? Who's preaching today? What's the music going to be? Aren't the flowers lovely? Uh, the sermon was too long. Or this, that, or the other. Or I had to sit with, you know, and that was terrible. Or whatever. Or the person behind me was singing off key. It's just amazing the list of things that we have to describe what happened on Sunday morning or Sunday evening when we go to church. Here's the main thing that happened. Either God was pleased or He wasn't pleased. That's it. Now, obviously, we're making note of these aesthetic concerns. And in case you're wondering, I probably make more notes than any of you about the things that happened that day. But the fundamental thing we're trying to accomplish is His pleasure. What comes into His sanctuary? A grateful heart, not a grumbling heart. What comes into His sanctuary? A heart that wants to be in His presence, not a heart that's looking for how quickly they can get out of His presence. 
What comes into his sanctuary? A heart that loves his people, not a heart that is envying his people or indifferent toward his people or in unresolved conflict with his people. He's not interested in that. What does he want to come into his sanctuary? People who are devoted to the Lord and who include even their sexual life devoted to the Lord. Because in pagan practice, as we've seen, their sexual practice was connected with their religious practice. Same way with the Israelites, same way with the Christians. The sexual life that we bring into the sanctuary is to be consistent with the worship life of a God who is faithful to his one bride, his church, his people. So he cares about what comes into his sanctuary. Now you may be wondering, so what in the world does verse 1 have to do with anything? Well, because there are certain things in sacramental life that were to be excluded in Israel, and one was eunuchs. And here's why. One's sex organs have something to do with a man's wholeness. And you'll notice that in a lot of cases where either lepers were excluded or other types of injuries or diseases, it was a wholeness that was to come into the worship of God because of its sacramental nature. Now what is interesting is that in these times... It was a religious practice of some pagan gods uh, to call upon men to sacrifice themselves in this way as an act of religious worship. And Jehovah says, I don't want any of that. That's an abomination to me. So if that's the way people are worshiping, I don't want them in my presence. So God's worship does not destroy men. It actually builds men up. And that was an act of destruction of the pagan gods. And so... He disallowed it. Now, what's interesting is you go to Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. You'll see there that Isaiah predicts a day when the eunuchs will come into the sanctuary of God. So, although they're being excluded for sacramental purposes, they have to stand outside, if you will. There's one day God's saying there's going to be an inclusion of those who have been wounded. And then, of course, when you get to Acts chapter 8, the text I've cited there, what happens there? An Ethiopian eunuch. Now, why were people eunuchs? Either for religious purposes or for governmental purposes. What was the governmental purpose? Well, if you happen to be a helper to the queen, you're going to be a eunuch. We're not going to run the risk of having you have some sort of strange desire for the queen. That's not going to happen. So those who served the queen were the eunuchs. And for other reasons, sometimes men would become eunuchs in order to serve the, the administration and way the kings wanted it to happen. Well, here's an Ethiopian who is a Jewish man. He goes to Jerusalem to worship. He's on his way back to Ethiopia, and he's reading the Torah in Isaiah 53 of all places where, where we're told that the suffering servant uh, will die for many. He's reading that text. And along comes Philip the deacon. And... Philip is told by the Spirit to go run alongside this chariot. This man was a wealthy man. He was kind of the comptroller for Ethiopia. This man was a big, important man, eunuch. Uh, as Tim Keller calls him, he was a cross-gendered African Jewish man, just to show you what the church is to be made up of. And so Philip goes along, runs along the chariot and says, What you reading? And, I mean, literally, you know, he's trying to keep up with the chariot. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, I'm reading here in Isaiah 53. Well, do you know what it means? How can I unless somebody explains it to me? So, well, you stop the blooming chariot, I'll explain it to you. So he stops the chariot. Philip gets up in there and explains, beginning with Isaiah 53, says Luke, 
He taught him about Christ out of the Old Testament. And this is very intentional, gentlemen, to say that, that all along it was God's intention to include everybody from everywhere of all backgrounds, all diseases, all manners of brokenness to bring them into His presence. So this is really a temporary measure so that we understand that God's presence is holy. And so sacramentally, certain things were disallowed, which later were reversed. You see the same thing in verse 2 when he says, No one born of a forbidden union. What was a forbidden union? Well, this is the Hebrew word mamzer, and the word forbidden union, mamzer, simply means those that were born of incest or fornication. So a bastard would be one born of a forbidden union someone who didn't have a marriage covenant and had a child, or someone who married within the family contrary to the dictates uh, that are in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And why would this be? Well, you know, once again, uh, we can speculate somewhat, but God had strongly forbidden these types of relationships. He didn't want His children to be born outside of a committed marriage. That's the way he wanted it. Why? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? He wants his children to have the security of a home where the mama loves the daddy and the daddy's committed to the mama and they both love the child. Because some of you grew up in a home that wasn't like that and you know why now it's important for people to be brought up in a home like that. Because you know the deficit in your own life from it. Well, from the beginning, God says, that's the way I want my children reared. And if you all start breaking the rules and go out there and decide to have just families any way you want to create them, with anybody, any two people you want to come together, and you want to violate the sexual boundaries that are appropriate for a nuclear family, you're going to mess this whole thing up. You're going to mess up my church. So I want my church to keep pure the way in which it's rearing its children. Let me give you an example. Leave your finger there in Deuteronomy 23 and turn over to Malachi this would be chapter 1770, I mean, page 1776. 1776. And here you see Malachi 2. And this is, you know, many years later. This is a, a millennium later. And a thousand years later, Malachi is talking to the Israelites who have returned from Babylon. And not only do they need to rebuild the city and rebuild the economy that's been absolutely devastated. They need to rebuild their lives. They need to rebuild their lifestyles. And Malachi's job is to bring up the thousand-year-old covenant that's in Deuteronomy. Bring Deuteronomy back up and say, guys, this is what God called us to do all along. Let's get with it. This is how we're going to enjoy our relationship with Him. And see what Malachi does here. He takes up this whole issue in in verse 10. Have we not all one... This is Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Look at this. Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Well, what is this abomination? For Judah, he's using strong language here, has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. Now, Profane the sanctuary. What was the sanctuary? Well, in the wilderness it was the temple. In the Holy Land it was the temple, wasn't it? Isn't that the sanctuary which God set apart for Himself? 
But look here, here how he even uh, sort of uh, predicts a New Testament way of thinking about the sanctuary, which he loves, keep reading the verse, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. How can marrying the daughter of a foreign god profane the sanctuary? Well, here's why. This sanctuary is actually God's people. That's where he dwells. And in the New Testament in particular, Christ condemns the temple. It's destroyed. And the presence is now with us. We are the temple, 1 Corinthians 6. We're the temple of the Lord. We're the sanctuary. And what happens when we violate the standards for marriage? We not only mess up our lives, we profane the dwelling of God. Why? Because you belong to the church. You marry the daughter of a foreign god. You marry the daughter of you marry an unbeliever, basically. You bring her into the sanctuary. It's an inappropriate marriage. But you can see the point I want to make here is that it has effect on the church. So whom you marry is indeed the business of your church. Whom you marry ought to be one who rightly belongs to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you profane the sanctuary of the Lord. Keep reading and you'll see he says, um, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. So once again, God is saying this thing is contagious. You start this and it's going to be contagious and it will eventually destroy Israel. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives us a new power a new measure of power in the new covenant. And therefore, we will include things that were excluded in the old. But the principle is still the same. There is a devastating effect that you have upon the church when you do not marry according to biblical standards. Keep reading. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, he was there when you got married on your wedding day. He was a witness. And he heard what you said. To whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There you have the word again. So in our marriages, we're living out a picture of this covenantal relationship. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. There you have it. He's seeking godly offspring. So gentlemen, your marriage is the business of your church and your marriage is the business of your future children. And here's the question that you really have to ask yourself. Did you marry in such a way that your children will be reared in the Lord? Did you do that? Did you even think about them? Really honestly, did you think about them? Did you provide for them in the one that you married? Now, of course, some, most of us here in this room are married. So these questions are not appropriate for us now. Uh, the question that's appropriate for us now is, what about the wife of your partner? You did marry her, and maybe she made a really dumb mistake, but her job is to stay married to you and to make it the best she can. And your job would be the same. So we don't go back and say, well, did I make a good decision or did I make, not make a good decision? No, the big decision for you now is to love her with your heart. But as we train younger men, and for those of you who are single here, when you're choosing a wife, you say, will this woman be a, a zealous worshiper of God? Will she stand with me shoulder to shoulder and sing the hymns? Will she be a godly example? 
And then will this woman rear up children that will worship and serve the Lord? Is that in her heart? Is that her ambition? That, these are the most important things. And God is saying, that's the reason that I have all these commandments. I care about your kids. And those of us who are pastors, when we're counseling you in, our, in your marriages, believe me, one thing we're thinking about. In fact, if you have children, it's the main thing we're thinking about. It's the people who aren't even there in the room with us when we're talking. They're the ones we're talking about, even though they rarely come up. We're trying to help you in your relationship because as pastors, we are concerned about the next generation of believers. And that's the reason you find us getting very vehement about your obligations and about the way you're treating your wife is because you are shaping the church by your behavior. You're influencing other people for sure, but, but even more surely, you're influencing the ones that are below you. Now, that's the reason, back to Deuteronomy 23, that you get such strong provisions about what kind of marriages please the Lord and are right to come into His presence. And once again, uh, we know from the grace of God that His intention, of course, when we make marital mistakes, we make sexual mistakes, bring them all in. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened. Jesus' whole ministry was to the sexually immoral and to the politically immoral, to, to murderers, all kinds of people. And he went out and brought them in. Why? Because he was going to clean them up. So yes, we come as we are, but we don't stay as we are. You come to him and he begins to work in your heart. And because of the power of the Spirit, we now bring in everybody. Because we are confident the power of the Spirit is so palpable, so so great, so awesome, that lives will be changed when they come into His presence. And that's the reason that Jesus, unlike the Pharisees, would actually touch lepers. If you touch a leper, you're unclean. And the Old Testament teaches us such. You don't touch uncleanness or you become unclean. Why did Jesus touch them? Because when He touched them, they were no longer unclean. He healed them. And that's the reason that we now have the power to touch all kinds of things unclean. Because God is healing through us. Nonetheless, there is an abiding principle of what pleases the Lord. This is the idea. We don't go touching people just because we like to be unclean ourselves or fool around. We touch people missionally because we want to bring them in and enjoy the holiness of the presence of God. That's the reason we touch them, just as Jesus did. Now, back to chapter 23 then. You see these children of forbidden unions. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation, which probably means not ever. They're permanently excluded. And you can read on now in, in verses 3 through 6 that they're also declared enemies of God. And with someone who's a, a declared enemy of God, don't bring them in and treat them as though they belong just willy-nilly right there in the sanctuary of God. There's some churches here in town that bring in flaming heretics and put them in their pulpits and treat them as though it's just a normal Sunday with a normal message being preached. Well, I assume probably it is the normal message, which is another tragedy that the regular pastor there must be preaching the same thing as these flaming heretics that they bring in from out of town. I mean, I, I'll name them if you want someday, but People from out of town who, who have published things that are in absolute contradiction of the gospel. And people invite them in to the sanctuary to proclaim their abominable message. That's not supposed to happen. Now, it's fine to have debates. 
It's fine to bring in flaming heretics and put a faithful believer next to him and hear the difference. I believe in religious dialogue. Respectful religious dialogue. I really believe in that. And you can do that in the church. But you don't have someone come in and proclaim a message as though that's what's, what the people of God believe when it's absolutely heretical. That's an abomination in the sanctuary of God. And he says, there are some things that are to be excluded. The declared enemies of the gospel are to be excluded from your pulpits. And you need to have some, something that got cut off in one of these verses to tell people that they can't have your pulpit when they're preaching something that's an abomination. If your pastor does that, you need to have a little chat with him. So there are declared enemies of God. And God's people need to watch their minds. What are you listening to? Who, whom are you letting persuade you? And it needs to be someone who believes the Bible and believes in Christ. But notice here something very interesting about the Ammonites and the Moabites. Two things about them. Number one, what's mentioned here is that when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites didn't help them out at all. Didn't give them any food. In fact, Sion, king of Og, was a Moabite. He comes out and fights Israel. And God says, they've declared themselves to be against me and against my people. They're not to enter the sanctuary, and you're not to treat them in a real cozy way like it makes no difference whether you're an Israelite or a Moabite. You're to have enough courage to stand up for what you believe and to recognize that if someone has declared themselves as my enemy, well, they happen to be the enemy of my sanctuary and don't act like it doesn't make any difference. But the other thing to notice about Moabites and Ammonites, where did they come from? Moab was born of a daughter of Lot. Who was Moab's father? Lot. He is the child of, of an illegitimate union, a, 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 a forbidden union. What about Ammon? Same thing. His mother was a daughter of Lot. Who's his father? Lot. You remember, the daughters of Lot got their daddy drunk because they didn't see any men around and they were beginning to lose the season of life when they could have kids and they wanted to have a child to protect their own lives so they both had sons by their own dad. A forbidden union. So here you have two nations born of forbidden unions and, they're, and they oppose themselves uh, to the work of God. And God is saying, uh, down through the 10th generation, do not include them. But now notice I listed here for you, Ruth. Who is Ruth. She is a Moabitess. <laughs> well, why did she get included? Well, she married an Israelite. Not only that, when he died, she decided to come back to Bethlehem. This Bethlehem, Bet means house. Lechem means bread. She comes back to the house of bread because they're starving in Moab. And she says, well, go to Bethlehem with Naomi. And in their sorrow, they go back to the land of bread, the land of provision. She's trusting God, basically. And then who does she marry? Boaz. And then who is her great-great-grandchild? David. And who is her seed to come? The Lord Jesus himself, born of a Moabite grandmother. Great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Once again, even in the Old Testament, you're seeing that, yes, God has these sacramental provisions, and you must be very careful about it. But in the Messiah, he is going to bring people who had formerly been excluded for very good reasons, and he's going to bring them all in. And then, of course, in Ephesians 2, you have the breaking down of the wall between all Jews and all Gentiles, including Moabites and Ammonites. And we're brought together in one church. And that was God's intent all along. 
But nonetheless, he's saying, in your worship assemblies, you must exclude that which is unholy. And you must figure out what that means today. And it begins with your own life. Come into His presence with joy. Come into His presence with repentance. Come into His presence with faith. Come into His presence resolved to live a holy life by the grace of God. And of course, that's the only way you can even take the first step. But notice what's included. Disciplined penitents like Edomites and even Egyptians. Edom, of course, is the land of Esau. And Esau and Jacob were brothers. And God is saying, don't forget these cousins over there. They treat you like crud sometimes. And it gets worse. You know, it makes me wonder why he's so friendly with the Edomites. Well, they're brothers. You've got to acknowledge those family lines. And uh, for reasons that we may not completely understand. But both groups, both the Edomites and the Egyptians had mistreated the Israelites. But in some ways they were disciplined penitents, I would suggest. So the first thing about practicing God's presence is to practice His presence in the worship assembly itself. When you bring yourself into His presence, come repentantly. Don't come thoughtlessly. Don't just barely roll out of bed and throw some water in your face and just hope that something good happens to you. Come with intentionality to present yourself before the Lord as one with whom He is pleased. Because not perfectly, but genuinely, you have let go of the ambitions of the world. You have let go of the things that have had you around the neck all week. And you are latching on to Jesus Christ. There's your holiness in the assembly of God. Now secondly, verses 9 through 14, we get how we are to practice God's presence even in warfare. <laughs> you know, like we said before, there's a saying that all is fair in love and war. Wrong! All is not fair in love. You're a Christian. And in love you must please the Lord. In your sex life with your wife, you must please the Lord. His presence is the most important presence, even there. And when you're fighting a war, even against Qaddafi, you're a Christian. It doesn't matter what they are, and it doesn't matter how bad they've been there are still restraints on your behavior. Why? You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is with you in the battlefield. In your worst moments, when some of the world's greatest evil is taking place, which is on battlefields, you are fighting this grisly war in the presence of God. Now, I know that sometimes, for those of you who've been on the battlefield, you say, you know, it's just... Your mind is so, you know, when all, everything's firing off and the, the guns and the missiles and the rockets and you just don't have time to think. It's, it's kind of like the, the German who wrote back his pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and said to him, Pastor Bonhoeffer, uh, he was on the Eastern Front fighting the Russians, and he said, Pastor Bonhoeffer, I just, I fight all day long. I, I put my head on my sleeping bag at night and I fall asleep and I wake up and I'm right back in the battle. He said, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read my Bible. I feel like I'm just lost. What, what do I do? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote back and said, my dear friend, just remember that when you don't have time to pray and you don't have time to think about God, He is praying for you and thinking about you all the time. Don't you ever forget it. So even when you don't have time, even when the battle is great and you feel like that you haven't had time to really think about the Lord, 
He's thinking about you. You put your trust in Him and you live your life in the presence of the Lord. In your worst conflict, in your worst moments, He is there with you. And He says, nothing evil. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing, which suggests that warfare itself is not necessarily evil. And that's the reason we studied just war theory. Because the Bible always suggests that evil that warfare is not necessarily evil. Now, there are evils in warfare, but your going to war is not necessarily evil. I realize some of you may be pacifists, but I just can't quite see it myself if we're to have anything to do with the restraint of evil in the civil realm, and I think we are. And if we are to submit to our magistrate, which we are, it seems that, that this is embraced by the Bible. So don't use warfare... And don't use someone's injustice toward you as an excuse to do likewise. You with me? So it doesn't matter what Qaddafi does to his people. Don't you ever use that as an excuse to treat some others of his people the same way. You hold to the highest standards. And it doesn't matter if someone defrauded you. That's no problem to be defrauded. Here's the problem is when you defraud somebody else. That's a problem. That's a big problem that needs your repentance and your restitution and all the rest. So you can seek to put boundaries up so that people don't unnecessarily defraud you, but do not repay fraud with fraud, for example. So even in warfare, nothing evil and nothing indecent. Even here he talks about the latrines. Isn't that amazing? Before our scientists knew anything about germs, God knew all about it. And this is contrary to the way that the Middle East fought their battles. If you're in somebody else's territory, just go ahead and crap all over it. That's part of warfare. And God's saying, you all don't do that. You don't do, there's going to be a difference in the Israeli battlefields. You're going to cover it up. You're not just going to leave indecency everywhere. You're not going to act like a bunch of slobs who have no God. People who watch you exercise conflict and get it into engage even warfare in a battle, even a lawsuit in court. It is not no holds barred. There are holds, and you are barred from certain things, and people can watch you. And they may laugh at you, just as we mentioned in Afghanistan. They'll laugh at you. They can walk out into the fields surrounded by women and children. You won't shoot. Ha, ha, ha. You know, fine. We belong to somebody. And we're fighting a battle in somebody's presence. And you may be so foolish you never get it. But God being gracious to you, you might get it one day. And maybe the symbol and the sign that we left will remind you that there is a God and He has a people. And may the people watch you in your litigation and realize there is a God and it makes a difference in the way that you fight. And here's what I notice in litigation. There are no holes barred. And that's basically the standard. Anything goes if it might help you win. Stonewalling, lying, perjuring. And very few people are being tried for perjury these days. The rules have changed. They have not changed for you. They have not. And you're better off losing a court case than you are to go in there and do something indecent or evil and dishonor the one whose presence is the only thing that makes any difference to you. So no matter what is at risk, do not put at risk the honor of the Lord in your life. That's what he's saying. Practice His presence 
even in warfare logistics. Thirdly, when we come to verses 15 through 25, he's saying practice God's presence in all your relationships, and particularly here in your working relationships. In all your relationships, people should know that there's an alien presence there. And let me tell you how most people will interpret it. <clears throat> the way they'll usually interpret it is that when you enter a room, things change. They, if they're not a believer, they won't know exactly why. They'll just know that when you enter a room or you enter a conversation or you get copied on the email, as soon as you're copied, something changes. And it's because everybody knows that a new standard has just arrived because you've arrived in the conversation. What it really is is that when they invite you, they invite the Lord's presence and you are there to honor His presence. They don't understand that spiritual reality. All they understand is there's an influence you bring and there's a non-negotiable principled self that you bring on things moral and that they can't mess with you. That's, that's, that's what they'll know. But for those who want to know where you're coming from, that's the answer for that phenomenon. And when they ask you, you should tell them because otherwise you take credit for it yourself that you're so moral, that your presence is making all the difference. No, here's what it is. Your presence is a mediated presence. In other words, when you go into something, you're mediating God's presence into that. So if you invite me in, you've just invited God in. Or at least you've invited His agent in. So you invite me into this conversation, now you have invited the Lord's Word into this conversation. You've, you've invited the Lord's perspective into this because I speak for Him. Now, I'm not smart. I haven't read the Bible recently all the way through, maybe you might say. But I represent Him to the best of my ability. That's what happens when they bring you into relationships. So what do you do? First of all, you protect the vulnerable. Who were the vulnerable? The slaves, for heaven's sakes. Now, in the Code of Hammurabi, which is about the same time as the Ten Commandments, the Code of Hammurabi makes it very clear. If a slave comes over to you, you must return that slave to its rightful owner because that slave is not your property, it's the other man's property. Would you notice this is the only place where you get this kind of treatment in the second millennium B.C. What is Moses saying? He's saying, number basically, or not eschatologically, but historically through time, there's no way slavery can exist with that kind of a rule. That's just the point that if you allow abusive, abused slaves to escape and find refuge in their neighbor's house, you have just destroyed slavery. But before it's completely destroyed, you've certainly said that humanity comes before function. And that I care about a man's life before I care about how much work he can do. And if you think of this, if this had been practiced in our own country, there would not have been a civil war. There would not have been slavery. It couldn't have existed. So what you find is a, a whole region of the world where about a third of the people were slaves. So you can't just eradicate slavery like that without total massive chaos and dysfunction and, and, and starvation. So you put in principles. And God said, look, you're going among a people who abuse people and who protect the right of other masters to abuse them. You're not going to be like that. Oh yeah, everybody else will be like that. You're not going to be like that. Oh, the rules, yeah, the rules are like this in the state, but you're the church. 
And you don't abide by those rules. You have your own rules. And you work them out in the state, no matter what anybody else says. So you'll see here these unique provisions. And of course, by the time you get to Philemon in the New Testament, Paul is saying to Philemon, you've got to receive Onesimus, a runaway slave. Here's Paul. He gets the runaway slave from Macedonia while he's in Rome. So what does the Roman rule say? Return the slave to its rightful owner, its master, otherwise you're stealing. Paul, without breaking the law, does break the spirit of the civil law because he doesn't break the moral law of the Bible. So he writes this passionate letter back to Philemon. You need to read it if you haven't recently. This is the Magna Carta of, of emancipation of slaves for two centuries following that. Paul says, Onesimus, look, receive him back as your brother because that's what he is. And then Paul says, by the way, Philemon, I'm planning to come check, I'm coming to plan spend the night with you pretty soon. Which is to say, I'm going to be checking up on you. That's the spirit. Protect the vulnerable. Secondly, forsake the abominable. None shall be a cult prostitute. And we won't take your fees from prostitution as tithes and offerings. Wow. I had a man one time, a Christian man who's a fundraiser for a college. He said, you know, someone once asked me about tainted money. Here's what I say. Tain enough of it. God says, be careful. Thirdly, don't be a shark. Verses 19 and 20, that is interest on loans. Now, the idea here is not as the NIV translated it. Uh, it's, it's strictly no interest at all for brothers. Now, you'll notice the quote from Calvin, which kind of provided the theological foundations for the whole Protestant work ethic and Protestant capitalism. Uh, Calvin was basically saying that the principle is not to take advantage of those who are in need. And of course, the provisions that are in Exodus and Leviticus that I've cited there are both in the cases of someone who is in need. And the usurious loner was taking advantage of their sense of urgency. But he does say no interest. But it was in a non-capitalistic and agrarian society. So in a capitalistic society, what Calvin is saying, here's the principle that when you're dealing with someone in need, your brother, let's say your church member who's in need and needs a little lift, you don't go back and calculate, now how can I make some money off of this? You're saying, how can I help this person? Now sometimes, even with your own children, you may loan them money and put a modest interest rate on it to provide a little incentive to get, to get the money paid back. But you're not thinking, how can I make some money off my children? They're in a weak moment. This would be a great time to take advantage of them. But that's what exactly people did throughout the Middle East during this time. There were no, there were no caps on interest rates. You could charge whatever you could get by with. And if you look at some of these loans that have been made and were made before that, where people are taking advantage of the poor. You can almost take the neighborhoods in our city and look at the types of loans that are offered, and people are getting ripped off. And God says, this is not what my people do. We are to serve each other. Do it justly. And so Calvin, I think, provides a nice framework for us to take the principles that are in loan sharking and apply them to our own day. Uh, we don't have more time on that now. 
Verses 21 to 23, keep your promises. If you make a vow, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. An oath is a promise to a human being in the presence of God. A vow is a promise directly to God. And here we're talking about vows. Wedding vows, actually, in the way that they're said, in most churches, they're actually oaths, wedding oaths, made in the presence of God. But a vow is a promise you make to God that you will do a certain thing. And you'll find provisions for this in the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you haven't looked there recently, in your old study Bible that we used last year, chapter 22 will show you some good biblical frameworks for how to take vows and oaths. And they are legitimate, I believe, even in civil court. When you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, uh, that's an oath. And uh, I think that it's appropriate to do. But when you take one, don't take it unless you're going to keep it. And you notice what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, taking texts like this, he says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. It doesn't matter whether your hand was on the Bible when you said it or your right hand was raised. You said it. And here it is, whatever passes your lips. Your lips are sacred. You don't have to have your hand on a Bible. You don't have to raise your right hand. Your lips are sacred. And if you promise to do something with your lips, it is just as binding as if you had had it notarized. That's the spirit of the believer. Lastly, don't be a mooch. Isn't this great? If you're poor and you're passing through your neighbor's grape vineyard and you're hungry, feel free to pick a few grapes. But don't put it in your pocket and take them home for lunch tomorrow. It's kind of like, have you ever had, you ever had this case where... You know, you're, you're, you're offering a mint to someone. You, know, you have a mint in your pocket and you're getting, oh, would you like one? He says, yeah, I'll take one now. And yeah, I'd really like a couple for tomorrow. Would that be all right? <laughs> you go, well, that's a mooch. You know, go buy some mints. And Moses is saying, guys, look, we love each other. Let's share with each other. But don't take what you're supposed to work for tomorrow and rip the poor guy off, you know, if you're a poor guy. Uh, just take what you need to eat today. If you need something to eat today, you can ask for it and get a little help. And no obligation. You don't owe him anything. That's love in the Lord. But when you start asking, oh, could you provide for my rent next month and the month after that? And you know, you're already making provision for not being a productive human being. That's being a mooch. That's not being a grateful recipient of the grace of God. So we... Uh, we find here, gentlemen, just as Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, that we are living in the presence of God. He says, be gentle with one another. Don't worry about anything. But by prayer and petition, thanksgiving, make your request to God. Why? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. So you needn't worry. You don't have unresolved conflicts with people. And you delight yourself in the things of God because His presence is here. We want to please Him with our mind, our words, and our actions. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your presence which sanctifies every condition in life. No matter what we've got or what we're dealing with, it is holy because You're there. And we pray that You'll help us to live out what it means to be a child who knows He's with His Father today in everything that we say, do, and think. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.